morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know who I am, my name's Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and this is a very unique season in the life of our church. Uh, Pastor Tony is on a much-needed and well-earned sabbatical. And so you're going to get a rotation of many of the other pastors here at Imago Day. Some of the best men, best pastors, and best communicators I know will be preaching over the rest of the summer. Unfortunately, they were all busy today, so you get me <laughs> instead. Now, I've been pastor here for uh, close to three years. I'm the youngest pastor of the group by about a week, uh, and this is my first time preaching here at Imago Day. But don't worry, I've been told the game is to beat the clock. So every minute I can go past the timer, I get 1,000 points. <laughs> pastor Shane's got the record at 30,000 points, so I gotta really aim high, uh, but we'll see how I do. Uh, now, I have an amazing wife over here, Deborah, uh, and two awesome little boys, Micah, who's six months old, and Caleb, who's three and a half. Now, any of you guys that have ever had a three and a half year old know that uh, he's absolutely brimming with questions, constant, incessant questions about every topic under the sun. Uh, some of them are innocent and delightful. Uh, the other morning at breakfast, I was uh, talking about this text, and he goes, Dad, did Jesus drive his car down the road to Jericho? hoping I would, you know, tell him a little bit about Jesus' kind of car, and, you know. And uh, such an innocent question. Now, uh, I may have strayed into heresy with my response. I said, well, buddy, when Jesus was alive, they didn't have cars. And my wife chimes in, Jesus is still alive, Pastor Josh. Um, so swing and a miss there. Kit. Caleb also asks persistent questions. So, uh, for example, the other night, my wife said, hey, uh, can you take the trash out tonight? And I said, absolutely, and I filed it away as the absolute last thing I was gonna do that night before my head hit the pillow. I'm sure some of you guys can relate to that. Oh yeah, I'll get to it. Uh, Caleb was not satisfied with that. Dad, are you going to take the trash out now? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to it tonight, don't worry. 45 seconds later. Dad, are you going to take the trash out now? Uh, soon, buddy, soon. Dad, are you, you know what? This is exactly the moment that I'm gonna get that trash out the door. Now, he's also starting uh, to begin asking questions that are quite crafty. So the other morning he says, Dad, is it raining outside? I was like, oh man, easy one, softball, I'm ready for this. No, it's not raining outside, it's nice and sunny. By the time I finish that sentence, he's opened the front door and is sprinting onto the porch because the day before, he had said, Dad, can we go play together outside? And I said, no, buddy, it's raining out there. So he filed it away. If I can catch Dad into admitting it's not raining, uh, we can go outside. And unfortunately, I didn't hear the voice in my head going, it's a trap. And so <laughs> I walked right into that one. Now, uh, Jesus never had a toddler, but he certainly was asked a lot of questions across the four Gospels. And he handled them a lot better than I do, too. As God himself in human form, he was patient, wise, and yet often piercing with his answers. He fielded questions such as, Jesus, where have you been when he stayed behind the uh, at the temple as a 12-year-old? All the way to, are you the king of the Jews from Pilate just hours before his death? And of course, an unending stream of inane questions that probably felt like they were from toddlers uh, when James and John would ask things like, can we please rain down fireballs on those guys that were mean to us? Now, my son's questions range from adorable to annoying, but in our text today, we have a couple of adults who ask questions of Jesus out of a sense of self-importance. Questions from both the lawyer and Martha that don't get it. They're self-focused instead of others-focused or instead of Christ-focused. But thankfully, Jesus has answers ready that not only didn't encourage their selfishness, but redefined each time completely the topic they were asking about. 
And through these two exchanges, laid out with three separate questions, Jesus is going to lay the framework for being his disciple. First, we must love God with all that we are, and then from that love of God will flow rightly ordered service and love for others, a love that extends to everyone. To trim that up a bit, let's state the main point of today's sermon as this. God calls us to unchecked devotion to him, and from that should flow right-hearted service. Let's see what the text has to teach us today. Now, uh, when we study any text in Scripture, we have to first look at the context. As my professor in college used to say, context is king. And without it, we lose the ability to rightly interpret and apply any part of Scripture. And there are two main kinds of context, literary context and historical cultural context. You can think of them as context within the pages of Scripture and the context for which we research outside of Scripture. So first, literary context. That's found in the Bible itself. What comes before and after a passage? What book of the Bible is it in? Who wrote it? When and to whom? Those kinds of questions. Now, to catch you up, Luke's gospel is divided into two main sections. And Two weeks ago, Pastor Manny kicked off part two in Luke 9, which is called the travel narrative. Luke writes that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, and what follows is a physical and narrative movement towards his death and resurrection. Then last week, Pastor Walter preached from the first half of Luke chapter 10, where we see Jesus sending out the 72, then receiving them back. And just before today's passage, Jesus, speaking with the disciples, explains that the truth has been hidden from the wise and the knowledgeable, and yet revealed to children. Now, the other side of the coin would be the historical cultural context. For any interpretation of a passage of Scripture to be valid, we also have to understand it within the historical, cultural, and physical context that it exists in. God chose to speak at a certain time in history to certain people in a certain part of the world, and we have to understand something about that time, people, and place to understand Scripture. And this is very important but often overlooked as we tend to read Scripture with our eyes in our time, with our presuppositions. We will try to touch on this kind of context as much as we need to as we go through the text today, because I think it will be especially important. So as we read through these two stories, framed by three self-important questions, let's try to ground them in the context with which they first occurred and with which they were written. And with that, let's dive into our first question. How shall I inherit eternal life? It starts in verse 25, where it seems like Jesus is teaching a group of people. And it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, it identifies him here as a lawyer. And many of you may have had a knee-jerk reaction to the word lawyer. Uh, They're commonly framed negatively in our culture. uh, And behind politicians may be the second most joked about profession. Uh, If you're a lawyer in the room, you're probably either for or against that statement. Uh, But this lawyer was a little bit different than what we would think of now. He's a student of the law. Uh, In that day, that meant essentially he was a biblical scholar. It's the Old Testament law, specifically the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, on the surface, it could seem like this is an innocent, even thoughtful question. Right, he's asking the Messiah, the giver of life, how to inherit eternal life. Well done, you went to the right person. Uh, Except that's not what happens. Now, if this was a sitcom, we could have the arrested development narrator say, but he didn't really want to know. Or we'd cut away to a Dunder Mifflin conference room where the lawyer looks into the camera and says, see, I was trying to trick him into saying something heretical. And then he goes on to say how he put Jesus' stapler in jello. 
But here, instead, we have Luke as our narrator. And he lets us know right from the jump that this is not some humble disciple seeking the words of life. This is a self-important scribe who fits more closely with the Pharisees that we see often in the Gospels and their agenda of discrediting Jesus and his ministry. Luke's Gospel frequently highlights the schemes and machinations of the Pharisees and overall paints them in a very negative light. Whether this lawyer is seeking his own gain or some larger purpose, He's not asking the question out of a pure heart. Now, the lawyer was present with Jesus as he was teaching. He had the chance to hear and be changed by the very words of Christ. Instead, he asked a question to try and catch Jesus. He totally missed the point. You can further see that in the question he uses. If he got it, if he knew who Jesus truly was, then this was the last question to ask if you were trying to trap or test Jesus. Jesus not only wrote the book on eternal life, he was the book The lawyer clearly was among those wise and learned people who Jesus had just said that the truth was hidden from. Scribes loved these technical debates. Jesus was as sharp as any of them, and he knew the scriptures better than they did, you know, being the word made flesh and everything, but he used simple stories instead. Elitism versus teaching for all. Jesus was targeting a wider audience. He didn't want to make truth closed off to people. He wanted to open it up. So to sidestep the debate from the start, Jesus asked a question in return, one of his favorite moves. We see that in verse 26 and 27. He said to them, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus redirects the lawyer back to the Old Testament, which is lawyer's stomping grounds. In pointing back to the law, he's saying that what he is teaching is not separate unmoored from God's previous revelation. Instead, he's interacting with it, building on it, and ultimately fulfilling what came before. And by turning the question around, now the self-righteous lawyer gets to provide the answer to his own question. This interaction is very similar to one that takes place in Matthew 22 and Mark 12. There, a lawyer or scribe asks Jesus this same question, and Jesus provides the answer himself. Uh, This is likely a different but similar occurrence, And even in the midst of his arrogance, the lawyer quotes the same two verses as Jesus. He gets the initial answer right. Deuteronomy 6.5 is first, and the first commandment, as it's called elsewhere, is part of the Shema that a devout Jew would recite every morning and every night. And the lawyer pairs it with Leviticus 19.18, which is in the middle of a series of guidelines on a Jew's interactions with one another. In that passage, the charge to love your neighbor is speaking to someone geographically and religiously close to them, someone living with them and following the God of Israel. And what is Jesus' response to the lawyer's answer? He commends it. Verse 28, and Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. It's simple. He said, hey, you got it right, do this, and he makes a promise, you will live. So is Jesus teaching works righteousness here? That's certainly what the lawyer had in mind with his question. He was asking, what works do I need to do to earn the resurrection? Uh, And Jesus doesn't say that. He's not saying do these specific works. Do these things, your checklist to earn eternal life. But rather he's saying that full devotion to God is the basis for the relationship that brings eternal life. Then from that devotion flows certain types of action. Now, why doesn't he just say, what should you do? It's easy, get to know me. Jesus is still at a point where he isn't being fully explicit with everyone about who he is. But he just shared with his disciples that knowing him meant knowing the Father, and vice versa. 
Loving God with all that you are means loving Christ and accepting the salvation that he provides. And then from that, loving neighbor. Paul twice writes that the whole of the law is summed up in love of neighbor in Romans 13 and Galatians 5. This is a theme, loving neighbor, that's woven throughout the New Testament. Whatever the test is that the scribe brought, Jesus has passed it. He stood on the law, he's agreed with the lawyer's own summation, and he's emphasized a love for God that is the bedrock for faith in Judaism and in his new kingdom. But the lawyer isn't ready to let things drop. And so we move to question two, who then is my neighbor? Verse 29, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Once again, we get a question from the lawyer that seems innocent enough on the surface. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, for that teaching. Can I please ask a clarifying question so I can better apply it in my life? But Luke, the narrator, is back with a voiceover that tells us what's really going on. The lawyer was desiring to justify himself. The lawyer was hoping to receive an answer from Jesus that would soften the demand. He didn't want to change anything about how he was living in order to still get credit for obedience. The lawyer is looking for the minimum obedience required, but Jesus requires total obedience. The lawyer wants to create a category, that of a non-neighbor. He wants a bucket with which to put those he doesn't like or inconvenient to love or are costly to care for. It was common for the Jewish people to draw a line between themselves and those outside the community. The same standards for loving your neighbor that applied to your fellow Jews didn't need to apply to those outside. And the lawyer is asking how close to himself he can draw the line. Instead, Jesus bends down and erases the line entirely. And he does that with this parable. So he introduces it in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now Jesus here starts a parable, one of his favorite methods of teaching in the New Testament. This is the second full-length parable in the Gospel of Luke, but we'll have many more as we continue through the rest of the book. Now the first was in Luke 8, the parable of the four soils. Pastor Tony preached on that a couple of months ago. Now, a parable is a very distinct form of teaching, and so it's helpful to remind us what a parable is. So, longtime London pastor R.T. Kendall defines a parable as a simple story that illustrates a profound truth. Biblical scholar Klein Snodgrass says, parables were the means Jesus used most frequently to explain the kingdom of God and to show the character of God and the expectations that God has for us. Now, parables come in all shapes and sizes, but many of them had some basic components that were the same. They tended to focus on just a couple of key characters. They had a setting and a conflict that were very familiar to listeners, and they had a small number of key takeaways that should change the behavior of the hearers. There should be something, usually coming at the end of the parable, that was an action step for those hearing. Now, it's hard to make any one statement about the parables otherwise, because they're varied in length, structure, and topic. Jesus does tell us a little bit about his strategy for parables earlier in Luke's gospel. Uh, Right after that parable of the four soils in Luke 8, he tells his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And this ties directly into the verses that we mentioned before today's text. The Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. No amount of knowledge, of training, 
of education, of personal brilliance will help us understand the secrets of the kingdom. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And if you're a believer today, the full meaning of Jesus' teaching is available to you. The scales have fallen from our eyes to behold the wondrous nature of Jesus and his kingdom. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't use our knowledge and study to understand more fully what's being taught here. So let's take a look to understand what is Jesus teaching with this parable. Now, as we said, a parable is often set somewhere familiar to the hearers. And the setting Jesus lays out here is exactly that. Now, it's tempting to give an example in our time or culture, to try to translate the story into something we would better understand, to retell it in a modern context. The problem when we do that with a parable is that it's nearly impossible to do that perfectly. As a story set completely in its context, there's a great likelihood that things will be lost in translation. We have to seek to understand parables as the original hearers would have understood it. And that takes work to grasp that context. We want to take away application that fits our context, but only by interpreting the parable in its context. Snodgrass again says, any interpretation that does not breathe the air of the first century cannot be correct. So, let's take a deep breath, try to fill our lungs, and see if we can understand what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus sets this parable along a road, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I'm sure all of you are up to date on your first century Israeli geography. Uh, this morning over breakfast, we're probably tracing pathways on a map through the Benjamin Plateau or the Judean Shephelah. But in case any of you aren't familiar, uh, we're going to try to land in the context with both feet by actually looking at a map of Israel. Now, uh, I didn't have this in the first service. I have been uh, gifted a laser pointer, so we're going to see what happens here. So what we're looking at here is the nation of Israel. At the time, it's under Roman control, and so they've redefined it as Palestine. But uh, Palestine and Israel pretty well overlap. Israel's about the size of New Jersey. Uh, and uh, let's see how this works. Okay, so down here, we have Judea. That's where Jerusalem is, Bethlehem, those kinds of things. In the center, we have Samaria, which would have uh, been where the northern kingdom of Israel mainly was. And then up top, we have Galilee, where Jesus grew up and had most of his ministry. Now, this body of water right here is the Sea of Galilee. You can see, really, it should be the big pond of Galilee, but uh, they go by Sea of Galilee. Then this is the Jordan River leading down. And then this is the Dead Sea, which is one of the lowest points on the earth. So Israel, as far as we see it in the Bible, tends to be this area right here, in between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And right here at the top of the Dead Sea, this is Jerusalem right here. And then up and to the right is Jericho. Now, the colors you're seeing here are supposed to indicate rainfall, but they're, uh, they're a little misleading. There is no lush green area in Israel. Uh, the green corresponds to getting about half as much rain as we do here in Israel. Uh, sorry, here in Raleigh. Uh, the, bl the blue is about half as much. And then any brown stuff is about a tenth as much. So that's what we're looking at. So all of it's very dry and arid, but the area where Jericho is especially so. Hopefully the laser pointer helped there. So um, as Pastor Manny talked about two weeks ago, Jews and Samaritans tended to loathe each other. Uh, we'll get into that more in just a few minutes, but the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was used by Jews to avoid Samaria. So if Samaria is in the middle here, if you were down in Jerusalem, to get to Galilee, you should just go straight up. Uh, Jesus does that once when he meets with the woman at the well. But most Jews are like, no, I'm not going anywhere near Samaria. So they go out to Jericho, into Perea, all the way up over here, and then cut over. So for many Jews, that's adding days and days to their trip just to avoid the Samaritans. So 
uh, in addition to this being a familiar road, there was a connection here with how much Jews hated Samaria. If you were avoiding the Samaritans, this was the road you took. All right, we have a second map here that zooms in a bit. So you can probably see it for yourself, but we got Jerusalem here and Jericho. Uh, and so this distance between them is about 15 miles, and you lose almost a mile in elevation. So uh, I studied for a semester in Israel, and so we traveled that a couple times, and you're like leaning into your seatbelt because you're just tipped that much as you're going down. Uh, the road itself is kind of curving back and forth, and it's arid. It's a barren area of Israel, and so um, with steep wadis and caves on either side. So you can't see what's ahead of you, and there could be people hiding on either side. And so it was a well-known place of robbers. Okay, so that's the context Jesus is establishing right away. His audience had likely walked that road themselves, especially if they're near Jerusalem when he tells this parable, but they're almost certainly familiar with it. It was a very well-known route. So Jesus introduces this parable in a familiar setting. And this first character is something of an everyman, just a generic Jew. His identity specifically isn't important to the parable and therefore isn't important to the point Jesus is trying to make. He's attacked by robbers who not only stole from him, but stripped him of his clothes and left him half dead. It's a brutal event and one any traveler likely feared happening to them. So instantly, with one line, Jesus had captivated his audience by making the setting of this parable familiar and visceral. He continues in verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The lawyer, someone who spent their life studying scripture, likely felt a lot of kinship with the priest who pops up next in the story. As Jesus introduces him, perhaps he's thinking, oh great, Jesus has put someone just like me into the story to show me how to be a neighbor to my fellow Jews. To the lawyer, the priest was the likely hero of the story. But of course, that's not what happened. Now, in Jesus' time, priests worked in the temple conducting sacrifices on behalf of the people. They often worked in week-long shifts, then rotated out for some amount of time. So as such, it was common for priests to have a home outside the city, and Jericho, as something of a resort town and within a day's journey, was a prime spot. Now, Jericho at the time of Jesus was not the same Jericho we read about in the book of Joshua uh, that came tumbling down. It's been rebuilt by Herod into a desirable place to live or stay outside the city. There's plantations, aqueducts, and pools. Some estimates by contemporaries were that half of the priests at the Jerusalem temple lived in Jericho. So it was a common thing for priests to be walking this road. So in the story, one of the religious elites, those who know the word inside and out, and who are held up as the pure and the upright among the Jewish people, he's going down, so he just finished his service to the people of Israel, and he comes across someone that needs help. And what does he do? He passes by on the other side. He doesn't want to even be close to this person. For the self-righteous lawyer, this twist must have hurt. But then a Levite comes up, also part of the religious leadership. Levites were kind of assisting the priests in their work. But although he appears to look a little more closely at the man, he too steps to the other side. Two chances for the established religious leadership to live out the commands of God and nothing. Ultimately, we don't know for sure why these men ignore the man in need as no motivation is given by Jesus, meaning it's ultimately not important to understanding the parable. What's clear and vital is that the two religious leaders failed to show compassion to this person in need. It's one thing to know the law, and another thing entirely to obey it with the right heart attitude. Satan knows every word of scripture. 
There are atheists who teach the Bible. Even pastors and priests in our day serve for years without truly experiencing heart change. Knowing the words of God is not enough. This parable exposes the emptiness of religion without love. As the prophet Hosea said, God desires mercy, not service. These leaders should have been the first ones to care for this dying man. And instead, they chose convenience. They chose the path that best preserved the life they wanted to live. And church, when religious leaders put protecting themselves above compassion for others, they reject the teachings of Christ and they become the villains of the story. Don't rely on any religious leader to be perfect. We aren't, and there may be times that we let you down. The one who won't let you down is only your Father in heaven. Now the question the listeners are now asking is, who's going to help this dying man? Whatever the composition of the group listening in, they likely expected now a Jewish layperson. Perhaps this story was an indictment of the clergy, and the common person was going to be the hero and save the day. But Jesus had a much bigger vision in mind. Verse 33, but a Samaritan, I'm going to stop right there. Because hearing the word Samaritan would have hit the Jewish listeners like a slap to the face. Pastor Manny did a great job a few weeks ago explaining the beef between the Jews and the Samaritans. I won't go as deep today, but in brief, Samaria was made up of the descendants of Jews and Gentiles, which meant those one-time Jews had committed relational idolatry by intermarrying in addition to religious idolatry. Their descendants lived in the land that was once the center of the northern kingdom of Israel, and their religion was something very similar to the Jewish faith, but with a couple of key differences. Uh, a key one being that they identified Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, as the proper site of worship. Now, the irony is that no other people on the planet were more similar to the Jews in blood and faith. But they loathed them. Rabbis taught that Samaritans were compromising mongrels who intermarried, committing racial and spiritual impurity. Another rabbinical writing of the time said that interacting with a Samaritan was akin to eating pork. You defiled yourself to be anywhere near a Samaritan in the eyes of a Jew. Now, Samaritan has become a positive term in our culture because of this parable. You think of a good Samaritan, you're going to think positively about that person. There's an aid organization called Samaritan's Purse. But we have to shake free of that and hear this word as the original hearers would have. For a Samaritan to show up, not only in the story, but as the hero, would have been incredibly jarring for this Jewish audience. Both because Samaritans were hated, but because this is the road where you're supposed to be able to avoid Samaritans. But here one is. It was a disorienting plot twist. Now, we can't make an exact analogy. The Samaritan was detestable in the Jewish mind for racial, religious, and social reasons. That's hard to match. This is the biggest place not to make the mistake of trying to transport it into our time. If I were to retell this parable but make it a Duke fan who's beat up, hold your cheers, and a UNC fan who comes along, we not only lose some of the impact, but we strip the analogy of its context, context that's necessary. Now, some of you from further south may be going, sure, but Alabama versus Georgia or Alabama versus Auburn or whatever SEC matchup you want, eh, that applies. We're out for blood. But, but it doesn't. Neither does much more potent versions where the two are white and black or pro-life and pro-choice. We can start to get close here in America, perhaps, but nothing in our context here approximates it. That doesn't mean we don't need to apply it. In fact, this passage applies to all of those things. 
When we understand it in its proper context, it sets the bar insanely high. All of our application now falls inside this definition of a neighbor. Sports rivals, racial differences, political opponents, even the loved one of a 9-11 victim with a bearded Muslim. Jesus used the ultimate example, and now we can't find an example that goes outside of that boundary. He wraps up the parable. The Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan's compassion manifests by immediate and needful action. He breaks out his first century first aid kit and cleans the man's wounds with oil and wine and bandages, then places him on his own donkey and walks to the nearest inn. There he not only stays the night to care for him, he then pays the innkeeper two denarii or two days wages to cover the cost of care for at least a few weeks and then promises that he'll come and make it right for as long as the man's recovery takes. The Samaritan's love for his neighbor, who is in essence his enemy, is both practical and costly. So what's, what's the response here? Verse 36, Jesus asks, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. The lawyer gives the obvious answer to Jesus' question, but he still can't get the word Samaritan out of his mouth. He has seen the point of Jesus' parable, but he still hasn't broken free of his prejudice. Now, it's humiliating for a Jewish man to receive this extravagant care from a Samaritan. See, Jesus does something brilliant here by making the Jew the recipient of the care. It would be strange for a Jew to be kind to a Samaritan, but at least that's putting the Jewish person as the hero of the story. But to receive unconditional love from a Samaritan, that was unheard of and very distressing to hear. Jesus is teaching that being a neighbor also means accepting neighborly care from others. That's a message many of us need to learn, myself included. Uh, a couple of months ago, um, a number of circumstances had meant that uh, I had not gotten to the yard in some time. Uh, you know, working two jobs, uh, traveling, uh, rain at the wrong times, and then at the moment, our family was hit by COVID. And so, uh, it was bad. It was so bad that our neighbor from across the street came and knocked on the door uh, to see if we needed help. It, it had grown up so high that from across the street, he had gone, well, I don't know if Jack Hanna's coming here or what's going on, but I'm going to go offer help. And so he comes to the door, and as a neighbor says, hey, I would love to cut your lawn for you. You look like you need some help. Was my response relief? Gratitude? Did I graciously accept this offer of neighbor love? No. I was embarrassed. I felt like, no, I should be the one taking care of my own yard. And I was like, no, 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 I'll take care of it. As I'm clinging to the door frame to stand up at the low point of having COVID, no, 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 I got it, I got it. And he left. Now, the Lord was gracious to me, both in giving me a wife who said, that was dumb. <laughs> and then a second neighbor, yes, that's right, a totally second neighbor noticed how bad the yard was, kind of made their way through to the front door and offered the next day to mow our lawn. And that time, I was smart enough to say yes. 
And what's more, when everyone was healthy, my wife baked some banana bread and we took it to those two neighbors and exchanged phone numbers and we're hoping to continue to grow those relationships. Now, it was a difficult lesson we have to learn to be, receive neighbor care, but of course, it is also potent to view it from the eyes of the Samaritan. Thabidion Nabwile puts it this way, the lawyer never thought God would define his neighbor as a hurting man in a rough part of town from a different ethnic group who needed his compassion. There are times that being a neighbor means being the Samaritan, and there are times that being a neighbor means being the beat-up Jewish man. And for the Samaritan, he defined his neighbor as, as someone who needed help, despite all of the above hurdles. Loving God unconditionally is the way into a relationship with him. We can't then go and place limits on who we love. Love is validated by action. Love for God is difficult to see, but love for people is visible. Others around you can see it. And Jesus says in John 13, By this all people will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. As Christians, are we characterized by our love, our mercy, our compassion? If we're continually passing by those who are in distress, physical, economic, social, emotional, we probably need to back things up and ask whether we truly do love God with all that we are. Jesus doesn't give us the specifics here. Unless we come across a wounded man on a desert road lacking all manner of technology, we can't write down a prescription for neighbor love. That's the point. Our relationship with God sets our identity, and then we must apply that identity in our context to the world around us. The lawyer was looking for easy answers that limited his responsibility, and instead Jesus gave us a hard truth that widens our scope. How do we move forward from there? That's a day-by-day question. Who we are has to then dictate how we love. Now, we aren't given the lawyer's response. He's heard the word. Will he do it? Will we? And then we pivot here to a second story, a brief description of a visit Jesus makes to the home of his friends. And question three, can you tell my sister to help me? Luke writes it, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Now Mary and Martha pop up a few different times during the Gospels, as does their brother Lazarus, who isn't part of the story. If you remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, that's this family. And it seems like uh, Jesus, it says that Jesus loved them, and it really feels like he genuinely cared for them and enjoyed being around them as friends. And that's not the side of Jesus we often see, but it seems like these are his peers and people he enjoyed spending time with. Uh, this home here is almost certainly the one in Bethany that's mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels. Bethany's at the foot of the Mount of Olives, which interestingly enough is the last stop on that road from Jericho to Jerusalem. And Jesus would stay there multiple times. Now Martha welcoming Jesus into the home likely communicates that she's the homeowner, therefore making her the eldest sister of these three siblings. That's not explicitly stated, but I'm sure anyone with siblings reads her question to Jesus in the next verse and goes, yeah, she's definitely the older sister. <laughs> now Mary, by contrast, sits at the Lord's feet and listens to his teaching. Now that's a very unusual thing given the context. Women in first century Israel were not permitted to study with rabbis, and you would never find them at the foot of a teacher, which was an honored place reserved for favored students. But that's where she is. This story is yet another affirmation of Jesus' views on women. He has no problem with women being numbered among his disciples. 
In Luke 8, there's a summary of some of the many women who followed him. They're mentioned by name. These aren't simply the wives of his disciples forced into being around and making food for the group. These are women who are making the personal choice to follow Jesus. Mary and Martha both fall into this group. Martha addresses him as Lord, and he's referred that way throughout the passage, which I think is intentional by Luke, to emphasize that these women were his disciples. He closed out the passage, but Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. There's one way to read this story that sees Martha's service as the problem. She should be sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him instead of worrying about earthly, domestic things like a meal. She's distracted by her work and trying to do many things instead of the one thing that is necessary, learning from Jesus directly. And there's certainly a biblical principle there. Our service for the Lord has to be rightly ordered after our relationship with him. It's easier for us to get busy and squeeze out time for prayer or reading his word. But the problem with reading this passage to mean Martha shouldn't have been serving is that Jesus never says that. He never tells her she's wrong for her service. And indeed, that'd be a very strange point for him to make. In light of the parable we just read, which talks about the service of the Samaritan, showing hospitality to his neighbor, and Jesus frequently teaches on hospitality throughout the Gospels. Martha is showing hospitality to a guest. And Jesus gently corrects her, but he doesn't tell Martha to sit down and listen to him. He just says that Mary has chosen well. Martha was doing something good. Mary was doing something good. Both are women of excellent character. Martha's problem wasn't her service. It was paying too much attention to what Mary wasn't doing. Martha wasn't wrong for serving. She was wrong for chiding Mary for listening to Jesus. She was clearly miffed at her sister. Mary was supposed to be helping. Martha wrongly judged Mary's motives. Whether she thought her sister was being lazy or distracted, she was worrying too much about why others weren't serving in the way she thought they should be. Instead of focusing on serving the Lord, she was concerned with assessing others. We get me, my language three times from Martha as she tries to convince Jesus to chastise her sister. How much does that sound like us? How much ministry and service are we failing to do well because instead of focusing on wholehearted work for the Lord, we're focused on those around us. How many of us slip all too easily into the sins of grumbling, of comparison, of judgment? Jesus was right to call out Martha, and he would be right to call out us. Now Mary, she is wise to choose to spend time at the feet of Jesus. She is listening closely to the words of God from his own mouth. Jesus was on earth just a short time, and she's taking full advantage. Jesus says that she is doing the thing that is needed, which is listening to the word of God. How much listening are you doing lately? See, this is an important thing. Mary and Martha are both examples to follow. There is a time to go and do, and there's a time to sit and listen. And we need to hear both at different times. Now, these two stories, the parable and the lawyer's questions, and then Mary and Martha. They may not seem all that similar on the surface, but I think there are a few commonalities between them. In addition to a theme of hospitality, I think there are two main threads running through these passages. First, Jesus strips our distinctions. Samaritans can be heroes, 
and women can be disciples. Jesus breaks our molds for what society is supposed to look like. Today is Juneteenth, a holiday that seeks to celebrate the emancipation of enslaved people here in our country, a horrifying and senseless sin that continues to have shockwaves for us today. That sin was made possible by people drawing lines between us and them. And as Christians, we can't be the ones holding the marker. We have to be the ones holding the eraser. The Church of Christ has only one dividing line. Do you love God with all your being? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? All other dividing walls have to be torn down. The body of Christ that we will spend eternity with will be filled with believers of every tribe and people and language, worshiping the Lord. Ethnic Jews will worship beside ethnic Samaritans. Russians beside Ukrainians, Republicans beside Democrats. For some of you, Calvinists versus Arminians. Be standing there worshiping at the throne. Every barrier but the only one that matters will be done away with. So why do we insist on clinging to those barriers now? Why are we so obsessed with defining us and them? Love your neighbor as yourself. Focus on what it means to love and stop focusing on defining who your neighbor is. Now the second thread here is that of devotion. The words that the lawyer quotes from the law are true. We need to love God with all that we are, with every fiber of our being. The parable that Jesus tells shows us that we need to love our neighbor. Then his words to Martha show us that being a disciple means devotion to Jesus, the Son of God and God himself. Neighbor love without Jesus love is ultimately ineffective. But Jesus' love without neighbor love is likewise missing the point. Next week, Pastor Trevor is going to preach on the Lord's Prayer, which emphasizes how we speak to God our Father. Love neighbor, love Jesus, love God. All are necessary for a healthy follower of Christ. Now, in the end, Martha got it. In John 11, Jesus again sees this family on the occasion of their brother Lazarus' death. Jesus arrives too late to heal Lazarus before he died. And Martha meets him when he gets there. And she is still very comfortable speaking directly to him. And even in her pain, she is making glorious statements of faith. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Then a few verses later, it's Jesus' turn to ask her a question. Martha, what do you believe? I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. She got it. The Lord was gracious to her in revealing to her these mysteries of who Jesus was and why he had come. Martha is an excellent picture of a disciple of the Lord who loves her God and Savior with all of her heart, soul, mind, and strength. She has chosen what is better. And what's more, after Jesus raises her brother, Martha prepared and served dinner for them all. Her hospitality is not an impediment to her faith but a natural application of it. Now, what questions do we need to ask from the Lord in light of this text? Not self-important questions, not questions bubbling out of misplaced frustration with those around us. What genuine questions do we need to ask in light of this text? Perhaps that question is, Lord, please reveal to me places in my heart where I am prejudiced towards others. Where are my blind spots 
in seeing everybody as my neighbor. Or perhaps it's, Lord, can you help me to shake free of my tendency to choose the easy option, the safe option, the option that protects my reputation? Or, Lord, can you show me what it means to serve with a glad heart and not a jealous one? But don't ask those questions alone. The teachings and commands of Jesus throughout the New Testament are meant to be responded to personally, but also in community with the church. Ask them with your spouse, your friend, your growth group members, your elders. Lean on your church community as you try to increase your devotion to God and love those created in his image better. Now, for some of you in this room, there may be a different question for you to start with. It's similar to the question first asked by the lawyer, but with a very different motivation. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer sees a physical act of God before his very eyes, and he asks the missionaries, Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? The response, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. That's the question we all must start with, and the response that must be the first step. We must first love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Only then can we seek to love others well. Let's pray. God, you are gracious to us in teaching us about your character, about how we can try to grow in being more like you. Lord, please tear away the walls that we have built between us and our neighbors. Lord, show us what it means to be fully devoted to you and to love in the way that you have called us to. Lord, strip away our desire to be content, to have things convenient, strip away our care for our reputation, take away our fears. Lord, give us a burning passion for you and a burning passion to love everyone like you loved us. Thank you for the example you've set before us. Help us to serve with our eyes on you, with our focus rightly ordered in a way that truly does care for our neighbor. We love you and pray this in your name. Amen.